0: was 17, I went to college, I lived in a dorm, I had a roommate, I ate in the dining hall every day, I went to class and had activities every day, and I had the time of my life. But if you're 85 years old and you have a roommate, you eat in the dining hall every day, you do activities every day, you're considered institutionalized. And I have trouble with that analogy in the sense that why is it okay to be 17 and go through that and not to be 85.
1: Welcome to the Medical Mythbusters podcast where we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. On every episode, we'll hear stories from the front lines of medical care to help dispel common myths and answer the questions you've been itching to ask your doctor. And remember, You can always find more information on this week's topic and hundreds of others on MerckManuals.com. Now, here's your host, Editor-in-Chief of the Merck Manuals, Dr. Robert Porter.
2: Welcome to the Medical Mythbusters podcast, where we set the record straight on today's most talked-about medical topics and questions. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Porter, Editor-in-Chief of the Merck Manuals, the world's most trusted medical resource. On this episode, we welcome Dr. Michael Wasserman, M.D., Dr. Wasserman's a geriatrician and a board member of the American Geriatric Society's Foundation for Health and Aging.
0: Thanks so much for having me here, Rob. Happy to be here.
2: Thanks for joining us, Mike. We're thrilled to have you. Now, providing medical care to older people can be complicated. Folks often have many different health care practitioners. They're at different locations. And things like travel and transportation get more difficult as people age. So we're really grateful to welcome Dr. Wasserman to the podcast today. He's going to help break down some of the bigger myths around aging and talk about the best way to deal with the complexities of continuity of care. I know when a patient would be in my emergency department and they had a geriatrician, I knew that if I called them, they were going to know everything about that patient, what was happening, what their specialists were recommending and what they were doing. And uh, they were the quarterback.
0: I often like to use the analogy of the primary care physician being the head coach. And that's necessary because in today's world, there's so many different places in healthcare care that the individual is interacting with, then it's really important for the primary care physician to take that role and responsibility to make sure that someone's looking out for the best interests of the patient. But I think this is an area that the the patient and their family as consumers can just encourage the doctor, the primary care doctor to focus on the personal needs of the individual. And I think many physicians are quite capable of doing that, given the opportunity.
2: Yes, that's a great analogy, Mike. Okay, so whether the primary care doctor is the quarterback or the head coach, uh, we recognize that that person's going to be coordinating care. But what can the person themselves do to get ready for their appointment?
0: So I know that many doctors sort of get nervous when they see a patient coming in the door with a list, but I think that list is the single most important thing a person can have when they go to see their doctor for many reasons. The first and foremost reason is once you're in the exam room, it's easy to forget what you came in for. And that has nothing to do with age. That has to do with once you start one discussion, you may just literally forget the other things that matter to you. So I think preparing a list is critical. And number two, it's really important that the patient give that doctor the list the moment they come in and sit down. Because the last thing you want to do is spend 15, 20 minutes with your doctor and say, oh, by the way, doctor, I brought my list in. That 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 generally doesn't work out too well and adds stress to everyone's day.
2: Plus that lets the doctor quickly glance over the list and kind of prioritize where they want to go, and even get an initial idea which ones might be related so they can pursue them together. Now, I always loved when patients would come with lists like that and with lists of their medicine, too.
0: And actually, I agree. The The number one thing is, is to have a list of the medications they're actually taking, when they're taking it, how they're taking it, how they're doing with it.
2: Now, speaking of lists, how do patients keep track of all the advice and instructions you give them for, so if they have six or eight items on their list and they go back home and their daughter says, well, what did the doctor say about number six? Should they be taking notes?
0: This is one of the greatest challenges in today's healthcare world. A lot of times physicians will go in and see a patient and they may not complete their note till later in the evening. Yes the information they're putting into that note will include instructions and plans. And I believe the patient can help both themselves and the doctor by making sure that they go down one by one the recommendations that the doctor has. They put it in writing of some sort that the patient walk out of that visit with something tangible that tells them what they talked about what they're supposed to be doing, because if they don't do that, they're very likely to forget some of the recommendations.
2: That's a great point. Isn't there also a myth that older people shouldn't try anything new?
0: I think there's a a general myth that just because you're getting older, you're declining. And really, I've often told people that that really doesn't start being true until, for some people, they're over 100 or even 110. The reality is that as we get older, the longer we live on this earth, the greater the likelihood that we'll pick up a disease or an illness or an injury. Age in and of itself isn't the problem. It's it's that the longer we live, the chances are something will happen to us.
2: Now, that does kind of bring up the question, though. Despite all our best intentions, we do tend to accumulate illness as we get older. And it's kind of hard to avoid specialists when you have a specialized problem. Cancer is probably the one that comes to mind. Uh, Someone with cancer probably should see an oncologist. And as I'm sure you know in your practice, uh, older individuals end up with multiple specialists. So what are some of the problems you can see when a patient has many specialists? Well,
0: there's actually some literature that suggests too many specialists probably doesn't lead to better care or better outcomes. And I, I think the best way I can put this is uh, a 90-year-old may have arthritis and diabetes and heart failure and and any number of healthcare issues. And if they go to six or seven specialists for each individual problem, they're actually not going to get the best care. And the reason is treatment for each of those problems can overlap. And I'm a huge proponent of older adults having a primary care physician that really knows who they are and really knows what their needs are and is able to factor in all the aspects of their health issues and, and problems. And you really can't focus on each individual problem without taking into the context of the whole person.
2: So do primary care doctors even have time to do that anymore?
0: Call me old fashioned, but I still believe that doctors have to take the time that they need to take for their patients. And you know, when I was in practice, I would often tell patients that if I was running behind and I was spending a lot of time with someone else, that when they needed that when they needed that time, I was going to give it to them. I think we've lost that a little bit in today's world, but I think we're trying to get it back. If we're truly going to deliver personalized care, we can't be doing what I like to call two prescriptions, three referrals, and a cloud of dust.
2: What are some of the danger points you see as your older patients make their way through the medical system between hospital and home and specialist and your care?
0: Fragmentation not having consistency, again, having multiple specialists who are not coordinating with one another. And I can tell you how many times I've seen patients come to me on multiple medications, each one prescribed by a different specialist. And many of those medications creating side effects that another specialist then adds another medication to treat. So I I think the fragmentation of care is the greatest risk to older adults.
2: Not only prescriptions for different medications, but certainly in my practice, I'd see older adults come in with three or four bottles of the same medicine, all prescribed by different doctors.
0: It gets worse because if someone goes in the hospital, if they're part of a health plan, oftentimes these plans or hospitals are changing of medications based on contracts. And so you might have someone go home with three versions of the same medication and they might take all of them, which can be very
2: dangerous. Is there a right age to see a geriatrician?
0: Theoretically, geriatricians see people over 65, but I think that varies. I think, again, if you're 90 years old and have no health problems, Yeah, I would still see a geriatrician if I could. And most importantly, 90 year olds in general don't react the same way to specific diseases as 40- and 50-year-olds. So it's really about recognizing the individual. And I think most physicians are actually quite capable to do that.
2: Thanks, Michael. It's time for a quick break and a few words about the Merck Manuals.
1: Whether you're a parent or a seasoned professional, a medical student or a caregiver, the Merck Manuals has the right medical information in the best format. And it's always free, easy to access, and readily available for you. Now, back to Dr. Porter and the Medical Mythbusters podcast.
2: We're back with Dr. Michael Wasserman. Now, one of the myths or conceptions, uh, as it may be, that we often hear is that it's always best to stay in your own home,
0: yeah, that that's something I dealt with my whole career. And we all want to stay in our own homes. That is the ideal. But we also have to be realistic and honest that sometimes staying in one's own home doesn't allow us to have adequate care, adequate socialization. Uh, there there are a lot of things that can be problematic for someone who has advanced frailty and limitations. And over my career, I've had many patients who I've had to say, look, if you move into an assisted living facility or a nursing home, you're going to have more structure. You're going to have more socialization. And I will often encounter resistance. But many times when that person goes into that higher level of care, They thrive.
2: Sure. You have somebody to talk to. You have something to do. There's certainly some pluses to that.
0: So I actually have a metaphor that I use to really compare uh, what we're dealing with in nursing homes. And that is when I was 17, I went to college. I lived in a dorm. I had a roommate. I ate in the dining hall every day. I went to class and had activities every day. And I had the time of my life. But if you're 85 years old, and you have a roommate, you eat in the dining hall every day, you do activities every day, you're considered institutionalized. And I have trouble with that analogy in the sense that why is it okay to be 17 and go through that and not to be 85? And to be honest, many of the nursing home residents that I interact with, they are very happy in their environment, and they're very appreciative of the socialization, and the activities, and the experiences that they have.
2: How about when there's a difference of opinion among family members? I know I've personal experience with my wife's family of uh, many years ago when her grandmother was needing more assistance, and the family was literally broken apart by the debate of whether grandma should stay with her daughters or go into a nursing home, and the family Halves didn't talk to each other for a decade because of this disagreement. I'm sure that's nothing, nothing new in your experience, right?
0: I have encountered that many times. And I think the family dynamic issue is really one where focusing on person-centered care is the most important thing. And if we really focus on person-centered care and we help the family understand what that means, we have an opportunity to frame the question in ways that take the individual family dynamic out of it. And what I mean by that is, you may have a daughter who hasn't seen mom or dad in 10 years or had issues, and now they suddenly come back into their life, and they have some guilt. And so their own guilt is interfering with what they think, mom or dad needs or wants. So if you're able to focus the conversation and the discussion of what's in the best interest of the person, what their wishes are, what their needs are, I think you have an opportunity to override some of the individual family dynamics.
2: Right. Reminding them, it's not about you, it's about mom. Correct. Now, this is a myth podcast. I don't know whether this is exactly a myth, and that's that aging is no excuse for not doing everything the way you used to.
0: You know, I I think the way I react to that is that in and of itself, one's age really shouldn't have an impact on what they want to do, what they'd like to do, what they're able to do.
2: That's a great perspective. Can you give us an example?
0: Probably my favorite example right now is... uh, I was at the Hawaii Ironman World Championships uh, cheering on a friend of mine a couple of months ago and came upon an 85-year-old Japanese man who not only participated in the Ironman but completed it. And that made him the oldest person to ever complete the Hawaii Ironman, which is a remarkable achievement of swimming 2.4 miles, cycling, cycling, 112 miles, and then running a a marathon, which is 26 miles, and doing it all under 17 hours. That's a difficult thing for a 30-year-old to do, much less than an 85-year-old.
2: That's certainly an amazing accomplishment uh, at any age.
0: If you don't use it, you'll lose it. And that goes for using your brain as well as using your body. I do say that exercise... Is probably one of the most important things anyone can do at all ages from a health perspective and that there really should be no limitation to the amount of exercise one is capable of doing now with that said if I were to make a recommendation for the average 85 year old I'd say that if they could get in a half an hour of exercise every day that would be wonderful it is really critical that older adults stay mentally and physically active.
2: Is there a particular kind of cognitive activity that's important?
0: I think the individual has to find what they like. So if you like crossword puzzles, they're a great, great approach to cognitive exercises. If you like playing games, and in today's world, playing games on a iPad or on a computer, there's tons of games around that you can play. So... I think the individual has to figure it out, but the bottom line is you're using your mind, you're thinking. That's
2: what matters. So really, it's the same way we talk about physical exercise. The best exercise is one that you'll do, not the one that you won't do. So if you enjoy a particular cognitive exercise, then that's the one for you.
0: And it's interesting you say that. I, Ever since I became a geriatrician many years ago, I went from becoming a couch potato to someone who once to, if I'm going to tell my patients they need to exercise, I better do it myself. And uh, that has led me, as I get older, to actually have been completing and competing in endurance sports, doing Ironmans myself, and recently doing an event where over the period of 40 hours, I, I ran and walked 100 miles.
2: So how do different people's priorities differ as they get older?
0: What really matters is how we can help an older adult, do the things that are important to them. So, you know, one of the favorite examples is I might have a patient who's lost a lot of function, doesn't have a lot of quality of life, and their granddaughter is going to get married in six months, and the only thing that matters to them is making it to their granddaughter's wedding, and that
2: becomes the focus. So when should the person seek a medical solution versus a lifestyle solution?
0: I think older adults really should avoid medicalizing their care. I think they really have to focus on what's important to them, what matters to them, and individualizing their health care needs. So let's say someone's a diabetic and all they're focused on is their blood sugars, but that may limit the things that are really important to them. So it's, it's really about focusing on the individual and what that individual needs and
2: wants. That's great. Thanks for sharing so many helpful stories and anecdotes with us today. To close, what three takeaways would you like to leave our listeners with?
0: The first and foremost thing I think is important is to really focus on the person and what is important to them, what their goals are, what their needs are. Secondarily, I believe exercise is probably the single most important thing that we can tell older adults to do. I often tell people that if I can get them to exercise regularly, I can just at least one prescription drug. And I think we are learning more and more every day about the value and importance of exercise as people get older. I think the third thing that I'm often struck with is older adults are often on too many medications, and they don't necessarily know why they're on the medications. They're often on medications because they've been given a medication to treat a side effect of another medication, and there's actually very little literature supporting the use of many prescription drugs in people in their 80s and 90s. And so as we get older, I think it is really critical to constantly ask ourselves, whether we need to be on the medications we're on.
2: Excellent advice. Where can you recommend our listeners go to learn more about aging?
0: One place I always recommend is the Merck Manual. We've really endeavored to include age-specific information into many of the chapters. I'd also suggest the American Geriatric Society's Foundation for Health in Aging, which has a lot of age-specific information on its website.
2: Well, thank you for that. Two good resources. Well, Dr. Wasserman, I really appreciate your time. It's been very helpful to hear you discuss some of the major issues about aging and also to emphasize the importance of continuity of care and consistency in medication use. I think I can speak for myself and all our listeners that we've learned so much about these issues and how family and caregivers can take a more active part in older people's care. And for more information on these and hundreds of other medical topics, please visit MerckManuals.com. And remember, as we say at the Merck Manuals, Medical
0: knowledge is power. Pass it on.